This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is political journalist Jennifer Steinhauer. We spoke with her via Zoom in June of 2020 about her latest book, The Firsts, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress by publisher Algonquin Books. She's been a journalist with the New York Times for over 30 years, and throughout her career, she's written about everything from the West Coast to politics, business, food, and healthcare. Since 2010, her main beat has been the U.S. Congress, and her new book explores the experiences of the women in the 116th Congressional Freshman Class and how the sudden increase in female members has impacted the House and Senate. The thing about having numbers in a political movement is that you can't really have a lot of change without it. You can have certain people that become familiar as agitators for whatever cause, but until you have a plurality, until you have a lot of people with you on something, then it becomes hard to ignore. We'll explore the hurdles many women have to overcome when running for public office, hear how the current social climate and the pandemic have affected the freshman class, and learn about the history of women in the Congress. Journalist Jennifer Steinauer joins us on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Victoria Babu. Well, Jennifer Steinauer, thank you so much for joining us. Let's go to the book. It is called The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. Uh, You do begin with a bit of history to set the stage for the incoming class of women. Now, I didn't realize that the first female in Congress, Jeanette Rankin, was back in 1917, and that was even before we had the right to vote. So I thought, I need to brush up on my history. But but that was an interesting aspect because it does set the stage for the whole rest of the book. And she was a force unto herself to be the first female elected to Congress. And you felt that was important, obviously. Yes, and and, um, you're right. The women did not federally have the right to vote. At that point, it was state by state. And obviously in her state, they did have the right to vote. And she was principally, she was um, aligned with many different issues, including rural issues coming from where she did. Um, and she was a pacifist who was the only member of Congress to vote against World War I and World War II, which were very different votes, I might add. But she was, she came to Congress as a suffragist and that was her first floor speech and that's what she was pushing for. Um, and to have that as your agenda, one of your principal agendas as the first female member to ever serve in Congress is really quite profound. And I think Jeanette is, Rankin is very much Um, lost to history considering um, how seminal that actually was. There's a line in your introduction regarding the largest number of women in Congress ever. You write, quote, a milestone at once, momentous and paltry. I get it. I mean, the obvious and true answer is they ran in response to our current president. But why not in the, during the 60s, during the feminist movement? I started pondering that. That was definitely a bullet point um, in history of women running for Congress a lot. Um, we just never got to these numbers. So if we just did a quick Super Reader's Digest version of this, for years after Jeanette Rankin won in 1917, you always had a woman here, a woman there. Sometimes a Republican, sometimes a Democrat, maybe one or two of each. 
And the vast majority for years, for decades, were women who principally took the seats of their dead husbands. And they were um, very much seen as extensions of their husbands. They were very non-threatening to the men. I always thought, oh, gosh, this, is, this must have been a huge um, worrying the threat to the men in Congress. Why wasn't there more um, overt sexism in those periods? Well, because a lot of the women, first of all, many of them weren't feminists. They called themselves Mrs. John Smith, you know, and they were really just fulfilling their husband's agendas. And a lot of the guys knew them because they'd worked on the campaigns or in the campaign offices. Um, for those who were not taking a dead husband seat. Most of them are extremely wealthy and they had their kind of family funding. So this very patrician class. And that's how it was for a long time until the 60s and 70s where you started to see women run on their own um, right. Patsy Mink from Hawaii, the first non-white woman to win in the 60s. Uh, Shirley Chisholm, first black woman. Um, I always talk about Pat Schroeder, who served for many years and was a trailblazer in her own right in the 70s and really took a lot of guff. I mean, really nasty stuff. Men asking um, her to sit on their face in the cloakroom and, and saying, we don't even know what you women are doing here. And, they, and I was, again, trying to answer, answer the question for myself, why were these women so abused when the other women before them um, in an era when no women were in Congress, were not. And that was the reason. They were running an environment of protests against the war in Vietnam. It was kind of a similar tumultuous period. So there was a, there was a lot of social upheaval um, around the war, around race relations, around a lot of um, things tearing at the social fabric at that time. When, and, and, of course, the feminist movement. I don't know if you've seen um, the show Mrs. America. I strongly recommend it. It's a... It's a um, uh, like an, I think it was eight or nine uh, part series about the um, ERA movement. And it's really kind of told through the story of Phyllis Shafley, who, who helped to defeat the ERA. But an important thing that you take in um, when you watch that, if you don't know much about that time period, is that Republican and Democratic women were very united on that. Um, most, most Republican women did support the ERA. Um, and that's why it passed Congress, although it was never ratified in the states, as we know. And that's what, you know, that movement to make sure that didn't happen. I feel Schlafly is what that show documents, um, obviously, in a, in a fictional way, but, but true to the story. So that's really important to understand that women were more united in certain agendas at that time. And there was not the political polarization, even though it was a very politically tumultuous time. So then you have periods you know, 1992, Year of the Women, some of these little blips where women win more, but this kind of stays steady um, until you got a little bit more in 2018. And that movement was very much in response to um, Donald Trump winning in 2016. I mean, they all say this is the impetus. To the point of women running, you know, you mentioned the retirees or the, the dead husbands and they inherited the role. It just seems so overwhelming to, to, to even take it on monetarily, physically, leaving your job behind. I mean, all these women, freshman women, really had to do that. And your children, your family life, too. Your family. That's always been challenging for Republican women, especially. Um, and they get challenged by donors about that, too. Uh, who's going to take care of your kids when, when, when you're in Washington? So, um, yeah, I mean, and women, anyone who's in the workplace, any woman in the workplace will recognize some threads of this, right? That men look in the mirror and they say, I can do that. And women just often, they don't necessarily when it comes to leadership. They don't, not all, but many times they have to be convinced by others that they can do this. Um, and that's certainly true for running for office. I always think of Heidi Heitkamp. She's a former senator um, from North Dakota. Um, she would talk about this and I would laugh where she would say women would come to her. She would go to women and try to recruit them to run for office, for the House. And they'd say, I don't, I don't think I'm really qualified for that. And she would say... Have you met anyone from the North Dakota legislature? <laughs> people, people would overstate 
you know, women overstate in their minds um, what the qualifications necessarily are, or, or I should say feeling that whatever they've done with their lives isn't enough, especially when the house is a place where you meant to have citizen lawmakers. You mentioned money. No one likes to raise money. Not even people who are good at it like to do it. But women are particularly um, have not liked it historically, and they've had a harder time doing it. But these things are improving. Um, and I think on the Democratic side, they, women have been enormously helped. And this is why their numbers grew so much more than Republicans in the 1980s by Emily's List, which dedicated itself to um, electing pro-choice Democrats, but principally women. And they just put a ton of money into recruiting and financing the campaigns of women. It's very difficult to overstate the role Emily's List has been in both recruiting and supporting women to run for public office. I just want to go to current day. So it's certainly tough enough to be the new kid on the block, but add on to the challenges of a pandemic and our recent rioting, the job to answer your constituents has to be even more overwhelming for these freshman women. Have you spoken to or reported on on these new lawmakers since writing the book? Uh, have you had that chance to follow, since you followed them that first year in office? I have had some. I actually did an event with Abigail Spanberger, um, a remote event, um, who represents uh, the area around Richmond, Virginia. And she was really busy. Um, you know, I think that these constituents, especially in areas that got particularly hard hit with COVID-19, but throughout, have seen a lot more of their representatives than they might have otherwise because they're there setting up testing sites, you know, answering constituent calls, dealing with the medical infrastructure, the healthcare infrastructure. So they're super busy on the ground at home, um, as well as coming, you know, dealing with Washington, obviously, um, right after the pandemic hit in terms of all of that relief legislation that they had to get through. Um, at the same time, I mean, you probably heard that Ilhan Omar's father passed away last week from COVID-19. So it's definitely hit them very directly. And, you know, he was a very um, seminal figure in her life, bringing her out of the refugee camps into the U.S. Um, that's definitely uh, a very a personal component of the, of the pandemic for her. But yes, of course. Um, and in fact, I think for people challenging them in 2020, in some ways it makes it more difficult, even though people can't go out and campaign you know, the way they normally would. Right. I think the incumbents are so much in their communities and people seeing them, you know, leading uh, when they are and doing events and, and trying to tackle um, all these issues that perhaps some people are getting to know them more now than before. So um, I think for this particular class, and I know all lawmakers say this, but in their case, especially for the women um, who won Republican districts, so they had to really get out there and go door to door to door and make these personal connections, that being at home uh, with their voters is kind of, for them, their secret sauce. They sort of prefer it often to being in Washington. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Ilhan Omar from Minnesota mentioned that she had many firsts when she uh, was inaugurated, and, and she really did. Uh, you know, one of the, I think one of them was wearing her, is it hijab? Am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Hijab? Right. Um, and you know in the book how women dress. And you kind of devoted more time to it than I expected because it even dawned on me. But it really has been a big deal historically. Can you share that with some of our listeners without giving away too much of the book? But beyond her hijab, she's also the first African-American to be elected in, from Minnesota um, and a refugee at that. Right. 
Well, with regards to um, fashions, I'm glad you brought that up. It, I had a little bit of a debate with my editor in the beginning because, um, as you know, I opened the book um, beyond, um, beyond the introduction talking about how Amy Klobuchar was trying to quietly lobby behind the scenes. So Kirsten Sinema, who was the first female ever elected to the Senate from the state of Arizona, who um, really favors and only wears sleeveless dresses to be allowed to wear that in the Senate floor, which was forbidden. And why bring this up? Well, because, you know, um, what women wear has been something that's been symbolic to people who watch them and, frankly, to their rights. I mean, in the 1980s, Barbara Mikulski was pushing and they ultimately wanted to have women allowed to wear pants. Now you think, oh, how can that be just so recently in our lifetime? Barbara Mikulski only retired from the Senate, you know, a few years ago. That's very true. Imagine that you're being told what you can and can't wear, that you can't bare your shoulders. That was the rule on the House floor until Paul Ryan was finally forced to confront that and open-toed shoes in a, in a city that's, you know, quite hot and humid in summer. Um, so it's not so much that I wanted to say this person wears these kind of clothes, even though it is of interest to people that these young freshmen, you know, get rent the runway or are dressing in young styles, just the way everyone watched, you know, has watched first ladies over the years to get their style cues from them. I think it is of interest to people and women do express themselves through their clothing. And generally in Congress, that's been to be as conservative and like everybody else possible. That's become less so as people um, identify themselves through their clothing. Deb Holland, who is um, one of the two Native American women who was elected to first, her and Sharice Davids, um, who's from Kansas City, Kansas. Um, she wears, Deb Holland wears these very elegant suits and she wears all this Navajo jewelry with it. And she's making a statement about herself. She has a Navajo blanket that she keeps on her seat sometimes um, on the floor. So, you know, people are, as you point out with the hijab, which Nilhan Omar also had to get clearance for that. They finally allowed a, a religious headwear, as they said, on the floor. Um, they're identifying change in the institution and in our culture and something about themselves that way. And it's always been thus. I mean, when, when um, Rankin came to Congress, everyone in the newspaper wrote about whether she was going to wear French heels or not. So this has just always been something, again, that women, the, the clothing identifies the era they're in, something about themselves, their culture, their home state. And it's interesting to people and it shows us change in Congress. It really does. So, I mean, on that same thread, you do mention how they even had to conquer getting their own ladies' room and their own gym and just all these things that just seem should have been there. Yes. Well, when you don't, you know, the thing about having numbers in a political movement, which is an obvious statement, but it's important to internalize, is that you can't really have a lot of change without it. You can have certain people that become familiar as agitators for whatever cause, but until you have a plurality, until you have a lot of people with you on something, then it becomes hard to ignore. And we're seeing that in our pro current political environment. So even for small things like, hey, how come we only have two bathroom stalls <laughs> off the Senate floor for women? You know, or we don't have a bathroom off the house floor at all for women. We need to have that. Why can't women use a swimming pool? Oh, it turned out because male senators were swimming naked. Till very recently, till the 90s. Why can't women have access to gym equipment and so forth? These are not immaterial, superficial things because they signify a lack of power. And that's really kind of the point. Jennifer Steinauer on the inequalities faced by women in Congress. In just a bit, we'll hear how the women of the 116th Congressional Freshman Class are changing the conversations in Washington. The issues that are being talked about in terms of racial equity and so forth, these women have been talking about since the moment they arrived. Now they're seeing that kind of play out on a national stage. And they got those conversations started. 
obviously our, our culture and our society and, and what happens here has been the ultimate spark for that, but they've been there and they've been fermenting that in their communities. We'll also hear her assessment of how the new and old guard congressional women interact both in the Democratic and Republican parties as our talk continues with Jennifer Steinauer on Talking with Authors from ATC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. We're speaking with Jennifer Steinauer. She's written the book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. Let's talk about numbers. Only one Republican woman was part of this freshman class. Do you think that she's more isolated? Do you think she just because she's not part of that group of the Demo strong Democratic women that can unite because they're on the same platform, so to speak? Well, first I'll address the Democratic women because I think this does get lost in the excitement and the interest in their numbers um, and the fact that so many of them ran and, and won, is that I wouldn't call that group of women who won in 2018 as per se politically united. You had a lot of women like Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who were winning in safe democratic districts and who not only won those seats that were democratic to begin with, um, but in some cases won by taking out an incumbent and trying to signal different kinds of change, which in many cases was um, younger, more female, but also more politically progressive. Um, many of them were you know, associated with their disciples of Bernie Sanders, for example. So they kind of presaged the 2020 battle for the White House. And then there were a lot of women, more in fact, who won principally by beating men, and in some cases like, uh, like Katie Porter in Southern California by beating Republican women, but they beat Republicans, and sometimes in districts that were pretty mixed or pretty Republican. And so they were going to be a lot more moderate. So they were not politically unified at all. And in fact, there were quite a few battles within the um, Democratic conference that year. I think um, when it comes to the Republican women, first of all, they've seen their ranks decimated, as I document pretty thoroughly in the book. There's a whole chapter about, about the Republican women. When I started the book, I thought it was just 2018 where they lost ground. And then I really came to realize right before my eyes, I kind of hadn't noticed that their numbers had distinctly gone down. And also, by the way, in state legislatures and so forth, too. There's a lot of reasons for that. So I think that Republican women have had even more impetus and need to try to find commonality with other Republican men um, and to try and gain leadership positions. And they've talked to me candidly behind the scenes about how the, the guys kind of stuck together and it was always harder for them. Um, with all these freshman women, very different backgrounds, businesses, livelihoods, age. Is being a woman what unites them most when you just walk through the halls and talk and just the everyday chatter that I might have with my fellow producers or friends? I kind of think so. You know, um, when I first started covering Congress, there's so, you know, hundreds of them literally, and I had such a um, difficult time remembering who was what. And I was always so grateful when I had to interview female members because I memorized them quite, quite early on. <laughs> Um, and I, I do think so. I mean, if you look at these women in the class of 2018, um, those class in 2019, um, women who were on and some men who were veterans, and they call themselves the badasses, the women do. 
and they're their own squad, and they also really knew each other um, before they came to Congress because they ran together, which is unlike the other squad. They were kind of involved in their own races and their own scenes. These women bonded as a unit. They campaigned together. They vote a lot together. They talk. They really work on legislation together. They they obviously worked on the letter um, to advocate for impeaching the president, which was a seminal moment because they were super against that. And then you know, kind of came around to convince, help convince Nancy Pelosi and the other Democrats to to go ahead and do that, even though that was a difficult issue for them in their districts. Um, and but even within, they have male veterans that are part of their cadre, if you will. But I still see those women peel off, um, talking about like Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. I mentioned Abigail Spamberger from Virginia, Elaine Luria from Virginia, um, Mikey Sherrill from New Jersey, Chrissy Houlihan, she's from Pennsylvania. They, they are kind of always together. And yes, their um, service bond, being veterans or having served in the CIA and the national security apparatus is their central bond. But I see them as women together, even so as a subset um, and you see women sit together a lot. Um, not that men, women don't sit with men in the, in the house. Of course they do. But there is something about women in the workplace when you're in the minority that does become, and especially in that place within your own party, in a very you know, politically polarized place, I think that women do naturally find a lot of affinity and comfort from other women. Not that there aren't women who try to undermine other women in Congress. Although I will say this. Um, I think that it's, that's less so with these new women. Um, and I say that across the, the spectrum of, of Democrats. I'm not going to say anything about the Republicans, so few of them, as you point out, only one freshman. But I think that one thing that's really notable about these women is they really do try to support one another. Um, and they're not, um, they may be having political arguments, but it, it doesn't feel gendered. I don't feel like they're trying to tear down other women. And you kind of saw that more older generations. Yeah. Speaking of that, how has that generational gap worked out? I mean, I would think every the, the seniors were all kind of protecting their turf. Somewhat. I mean, the men got pretty tired of hearing about the women. And some <laughs> of the old people got a little tired about hearing about the freshmen. But for Nancy Pelosi, you know, she understands where her power comes from. And she wouldn't have the gavel for a second time if it weren't for these women who she did help elect, you know, helped get, help them get money and raise her profile if they hadn't won in those Republican districts. So she understands that your power is in your ability to have the majority. And they, they were the majority makers. They, they made it happen. Um, that isn't to say there wasn't conflict. And she particularly had problems with, you know, was well documented at the time with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she was making trouble for other members. Um, they were fighting over legislation, turning on each other. And she kind of tried to make them see Republicans as their enemy and not each other. And she got frustrated by that, I think. But, um, you know, the thing about Nancy Pelosi is she wants to have women in office and she helps get them elected. But she doesn't then, as per se, fashion herself into our mentor role. She kind of says, here, you got here. Now go, ma you know, go make things happen. Um, that's really where she's at. She's kind of not in that head patty, hand holdy thing. And she wants women, I think, um, specifically to make good use of their power. Now, we all have a different sense of what that is in our lives, in our professional lives. And certainly these women had a lot of different views about that. And they wanted to have political power and not necessarily legislative power. And I think that did frustrate her because she didn't want them to use their substantial political power that they had in the party outside the house, which is very unusual for freshmen, but they did, you know, this is a different class. They had this profile and they had this, 
this following, the social media following and, and, part, and power within their branch of the party. And she wanted them to use that to help push their agenda, to win more seats, to win back the White House, and not to go against each other. And that was the real central source of conflict, I would say, um, that occurred in that Congress. Well, this is a perfect segue to my last question, a question that you posed in your book, Jennifer, and this is it. Are they changing Washington or has Washington changed them? Now, I know that's tough because you've got 30 plus, you know, freshman congresswomen, but overall, um, has it been tough for them to make the changes they would like? I think it has. Well, first of all, that's always the case in divided government. And again, they don't always have a unified political agenda. But I think it's pretty hard um, to argue. I mean, we see different types of people um, running again this time in 2020 and potentially winning. Um, more uh, younger people may perhaps taking out, as we'll, we will see in the next few weeks, some of the older um, members who thought their seats were safe for life. And you see people talking about issues, you know, the issues that are being talked about in terms of racial equity and so forth, these women have been talking about since the moment they arrived. Now they're seeing that kind of play out on a national stage. And they got those conversations started. Obviously, our, our culture and our society and, and what happens here has been the ultimate spark for that. But they've been there and they've been fermenting that in their communities. Um, so for better or worse, the kinds of conversations that they're changing, um, even when it causes conflict within their own Democratic caucus or you know against their colleagues, that is those conversations are changing. And so I think that they have been influential um, on Washington. And if their numbers increase, uh, we'll see that even more so. That's New York Times journalist Jennifer Steinauer as we spoke with her in June of 2020 about her latest book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress by publisher Algonquin Books. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Victoria Babu. Our editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. This podcast episode producer and editor was Paul Langdon. And I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and The Novel Neighbor. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.